This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Sunday afternoon on RRR. And what a fine Sunday afternoon it is out there. It's, what is it, early autumn. It seems like late summer. It's a beautiful day out there. I'm stuck in here on my own again. I've been stood up again. And the reason is, uh, of course, the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival is on. Cam, you're out there somewhere in Melbourne doing Food and Wine Festival stuff. What's what's happening? What are you doing? Mate, you're not the first one to say you're out there. Um, <laughs> this, this, this is true. But, uh, no, we're out there in the inner city uh, specifically. Actually, this is really kind of cool. Mm. I'm, I'm looking out over the Yarra River um, near Princess Bridge, nice. uh, looking where the public schools have their rowing sheds. But uh, specifically, mm. um, I'm here for this afternoon anyway at uh, the Deacon Edge. Mm. Isn't that good that we have something that's not named after a product? Okay, the Deacon yes. Edge yes. Um, Theatre at Fed Square. Mm. It's Masterclass, mm. and um, I am I'm honoured but uh, that I was asked to come and, and look after the demonstrations for the chefs here on Sunday. And I've just met this totally cool mm. chef, my God. Uh, her name is Mei Chow, and she um, has a place called Little Bao in Hong Kong. Yes. And um, she makes bao for the people and turns them into, like, uh, oh, like Asian hamburgers, I suppose. Ooh. And a really, really interesting person in the fact that she... Um, uh, was conceived in Hong Kong, mm. went to uh, live in Canada, um, worked in America under some great chefs mm. where she found this great independence and freedom of thought and brought her back to Hong Kong where she's pretty much the toast of the city, where she's she's cool. Um, God, it sounds so cliche, doesn't mm. it? She's a really funky, cool chef with, in this little 20-seater restaurant that... The line started at 6 p.m. every day, mm. and uh, we've been lucky enough to um, have it here at, at Fed Square. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Hey, you know, so, th- looking events, after chefs. Those events down there, are they, are they public? Can you just walk on in, or are they ticketed? Do you think you could just walk on into something like that? <laughs> no. I, w- I, w- I, wish it, I wish it were true, Matt, yes. you know, so and you- that there was free beer for everybody and champagne for those who asked. So, um, so if you don't have a ticket, you're out of luck. Yeah, well, you, you might be able to still get in. I think they're about right. 30 bucks a session. Yeah. So it actually works out pretty well. Um, look at the Melbourne Food and Wine. So it'll come down to Deacon Edge. Yes. And then um, I've got a race off after that. I'm off to um, Oak Ridge and uh, Matt Stone's doing the the fifth. Matt Stone, of course, is the um, new chef at Oak Ridge. Yes. And I've been doing uh, a, an event amusingly named Farmer Wants a Knife. Oh, yes. I see what you did there. Which has Which has a great acronym. Which I only just worked out whack. this year. You're gonna whack. go, you're gonna go yeah. whack. <laughs> I'm gonna whack it. Awesome. So yes, yeah, so I'm racing from here to the Yarra Valley, and hey, it's food and wine festival, and it's it's just it's great, and it feels like autumn out there. Oh really? Because it still seems a bit summery to me, but I haven't spent as much time out there as you have today. So oh, maybe there's there's still like a cool breeze. I'm, no, actually, it's gonna feel hot because the weather is is getting warmer. But if you look around. The trees have started to just subtly change, just and, turn, yes. and and it's funny. And, and one of the things that's a pointer to that is um, we have got a radio show, mm. um, which is kind of good. And I did go and speak to John, and and I start off by saying, "Oh my God, I've seen this mandarins in and at the market." Mm. There you go. Just sort of do a dramatic just, course. Just, just, just that right? would have. The, yeah, the, mandarin. The tide oh of the God. changing and seasons. Seen, and I've seen chestnuts too, man. Right. So it is. It's, it's happening. It may not yeah, feel like it, and, but and seasons are changing. Persimmons um, have, have hit. But anyway, so um, on today's show, mm-hmm. we've got um, a market report which is uh, interspersed with uh, uh, an interview with one of the most, well, accoladed, if I can make up a word, yes. uh, chef in uh, in Melbourne and Australia. I'm, of course, referring to Ben Shuri yes. at Attica. Yes. Um, he, of his very independent thought and the way that he merges the soul of a man with the soul of a kitchen. And um, it's a pretty long chat, actually. Um, hopefully it's interesting for everybody else. Yes. But I think uh, Ben's just a kind of a groovy human being, as well as a great chef. And uh, we talk about, you know, his success and uh, how he gets out of bed and um, the ingredients. Yeah, we just we have a chat. So, yeah. so that's sort of the, uh, the show for today. 
It sounds like a but good show. You, you sound like you need to get some chicken soup, buddy. I, I'm still, I'm still a little bit hoarse and I'm, I'm coughing up half a lung. Uh, just haven't been able to shake the loogie. It's very annoying. So we'll see how we go. Um, send positive thoughts, and we'll see if we can get through the show together. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, but um, I'll be back in the, the studio with you next week. Yes. Um, at which we we might run because it was that's just a very long interview with uh, with Ben, and we might uh, run a little bit more of that. Yes. Um, and I, in the meantime, I was looking around and uh, what have I got? I've got a food quote for you if you want to hear it. Go, let's do it. From Ben Franklin, um, right. talking about uh, the size of meals. He says, to lengthen thy life, lessen thy meals. That, that could be kind of good food for thought. He's a bit of a killjoy, though, isn't he? Let's face it. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe he is. But um, you know how I'm talking to one of our chefs, Paul Carmichael? Mm-hmm. Who um, is in Momofuku in Sydney? Yes. One of the things that uh, the the Changinator <laughs> is described to in sort of calling it Momofuku yes. is um, a slight nod. First of all, it sort of rhymes with um, swear words yes. starting with mother. Yes, um, yes got that. Which check. We won't do because no. yeah, thank you. Moving on, yep. moving on. Um, but um, also, have you ever heard of a guy called Momofuku Andu? No, I have not. Dude, he's pretty important. I'd say that uh, you would have tried his product. Oh, really? Because uh, he was the, the, the guy uh-huh. that worked out that if you deep-fried noodles, um, you could make them into instant noodles and you have a worldwide uh-huh. um, product. So happy birthday to Ando Momofuku, who was born in 1910 yes. in Taiwan. Yes, he's getting and on a bit now, the then. Founder. Yeah, 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 I think he might have... Uh, might be happy 160. Spitting up Daisy somewhere, but he's the founder of Nissan Food Products and invented instant ramen noodle. And uh, university so students it, it, everywhere have have united in thinking. Yeah, well, yeah totally. absolutely. Mm. And uh, you know, one of the great things is getting um, instant noodles and seeing how much you can jazz them up and make them taste really great. There was a um, an Adam Lau recipe, wasn't there, that called for two minute noodles in the book you lent me? Geez, I wish I had the That's details now. Right. But there you go. So yeah. you can you can jazz them up. Yeah, so um, which Adam? It, that was a uh, big pot, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah, the Adam Lau book. Yeah, totally. Which I've I've got to say is, and you probably see when I handed it over to you, it's probably the go-to book for me for the last two years. It has signs of wear, but that's a good thing because it means you're using it. Well, it's got signs of Mongolian lamb all over it, <laughs> and uh, you know the pork and eggplant sort of smeared over it. Yeah, yeah it's the it's the sign of a great cookbook. I remember years ago when I gave her cook's companion for Stephanie Alexander to sign, she looked at it and she sort of gave me this beatific smile and said, oh, Cameron, you've been using this, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is great. So anyway, on today's show, um, it is really about Ben Shuri. Um, and also we do um, a market report with John and, um, and we hope that the listeners will will you to feel better because yes. it, it, it pains me to, to hear that you're still not feeling well. The, the, the lurgy, it hangs on. Now, look, on that note, we should let you go because we're running out of time. So, enjoy your uh, time up at the Yarra Valley and um, we'll be back to normal next week. Yeah, um, looking forward to it. So, um, thanks uh, listeners. I hope you're enjoying your Sunday and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview with Ben and John. What direction do I want to go, John? That's interesting you might ask that. I think, and um, and good afternoon to you, it's it's in this weird time. where I've just been wandering up the aisles of the, the QV market and I've seen mandarins, I've seen persimmons, and yet I'm still seeing stone fruit. We're, we're like that song, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, you're not wrong. I actually saw some persimmons yesterday and felt really excited. Yeah, it's like, wow, okay, here we go. Um, yeah, mandarins certainly uh, get me excited, that's for sure. Yeah, well, Probably not time to eat them yet. I've got a tree from the neighbour hanging over my side, and I was just saying before, mm. that there's a ripe one on it already, which is early. That is early. Um, normally, uh, I pluck a whole lot off because they're all on my side, mm. and they're beautiful to eat. It's... Um, a very strange tree. It's growing 15 metres tall and there's mandarins all up and down it. 
But yeah, the fifteen coming, meters. Yeah, that's a big mandarin that's, uh, tree, dude. Well, maybe not fifteen, but ten meters. Oh, mate. okay. Ten meters are guaranteed because it's huge. Ten's big anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's things to look forward to, guys, because yeah. um, you know we, we've had a, a few new apples and that, and it didn't really excite me yet. But <laughs> thinking of uh, persimmons and and mandarins and things like that, yes, that excites you. Yes. Well, let's excite people with the, the tail end of some of the stuff here. Um, John, are you a pickler? Are you a pickle, yeah, are you actually, a pickle man? I'm a pickle man. Yes, I am. I am a pickle man. Yes, and I, I am. And, we could do a song about and, that. Yeah, well, don't give up your day job. All right. <laughs> hey, we'll yeah. work on it. Yeah. Um, because we pickle a, a myriad of things, not just... You, you've brought this little dill cucumber. Yeah, like what we call um, like a gherkin. A, it is a gherkin. It's a gherkin. Uh, it's a little knobbly, ugly-looking thing. A face only a mother could love. Uh, definitely. But yeah. a lot of people only think of pickling those things. When they're in their prime, mm. you eat them raw. They are so sweet. Yep. If you're unlucky, they can be bitter. Oh. And then, then you only pickle them. And I've had these pickled so many different ways. We've had them pack, pickled Jewish style... We pack them in a jar with salt. And you pour in the hot pickle, the uh, hot mix? Yeah, don't even do that. Stuff? A lot of them, they, they just put the water in, seal it, turn it upside down, sit it in the sun and let nature do its own thing. I love it. And the Italians put vinegar in, start the, vine- the process off. Um, some people boil them. Some people put them in the jar raw. Some people slice them and salt them and sugar them and then pickle them. So. Yeah. The thing is, you've got to keep um, things sterilised. Your jars should be... That's right. ...should clean. be sterilised. That's probably the, the main thing. Otherwise, Dr. Google. Oh, that's right. And you go, yeah. ba-boom. Ba-boom. And not only do we pickle gherkins, we pickle uh, capsicums and tomatoes if mm. we've got the time. Oh, and traditionally, let's face it, this is the time when you would really be doing the pickling because it's autumn, it's the great abundance, um, and this is when a lot of the stuff is cheap, available... And uh, and ready to be pickled and take you through the colder months. That's right, and, you, and and the weather's good, and you feel like doing things. So you get out there. If you're lucky to have a whole lot of plants in a garden, you bring the green ones in. You can pickle them so many different styles. You can make an Aussie pickle. You can make the Italian pickles where you slice them, salt them, mm. and then put vinegar and then pack them in a jar in the oil. Yep. Or you can do them. Um, what's the other way that we've had them done? Oh, you can even fry the green tomatoes, which is beautiful. That's an experience. You know, we've all seen a movie, of course, but that's an experience in itself. And, um, and, and with polenta mixed in with it, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. If you, you do you, it properly, as long you, as the polenta's not overly grainy. Yeah, okay, and not too much. It's just a little bit, just for a little bit of to the, to the tooth. I have actually seen people do uh, green tomatoes, cut them in half, um, and then just sort of put it into a bit of polenta and then fry that. Up. Oh yeah, crisp up beautiful yeah, crisp like a up piece of toast, and it's good. And then you just dress it, and it's just good. But anyway, um, let's move on. You've got um, first of all, there's some artichokes around, and you've got the. Well, this is the spinosa, yeah. No, this is la bastarda. Oh, la bastarda. We've talked about this before. This is a, a cross, probably between two or three different artichokes. Well, this los bastarda just spinosed me. Yeah, Ow. yeah. Ow, they, this... they, they've got a bit of a prickle. Now, if you Why really you want me to be uh, naughty or stupid, I'll say to you, lick your finger. But I've caught you before, mate. We've been doing this far too long for you to get away with. You, you so, know, you can fool some of the yeah, people some of the time, but not all of them yeah. all of the time. But, but still, there's a lot of dummies around. But, you know, <laughs> but we should probably tell people that if you want to do that, if you want to get someone to go. <laughs> Practical joke time. Yeah, get them to do that. It's like licking um, a deodorant stick or something. Worse. This is when you touch these artichokes and lick your fingers, they are very, very bitter. But when you cook them, they are so sweet. It's a cross between a couple of different varieties. They look horrible, they look tough, they look dry, but when you cook them, they are magic. This week, the old Italian boys have been around. They want them cheaper, they want them bigger, you know, but they've been coughing up the money. I make them bleed when I have to, so, you know, they go home and cook up a storm with them. So they bitch and moan, but they end up putting their hands in their back pocket. Of course, when you know something's good and worth eating, it's Mm. out of season, because it's nothing like yearning for something when you can't get it, and then when you get it, you savour it. And sometimes, it doesn't matter how bad it is, it's always brilliant. Yep. So, yeah, there's so many things. The, how much? How much for these the, These were selling two bucks a piece. Yeah. There's a lot of heart in them. These have got a very big heart in them. Um, 
and the outer leaves are a little bit tough, you boil the crap out of them, drink the water. Very good for the liver and the kidneys. It's natural blood purifier, and the flavours there as well. A lot of people stuff them. A lot of people have been chopping them up tritato and frying them. Or the very easiest way you can do it is just boil it for 20 minutes. Highly acidulated water. You know, some lemon in it. Stops it going black for some. Don't look at me like that. Then you just make a vinaigrette and you just pour it off and you just eat it. And that's probably, if you're going to start off with an artichoke, that's probably the way to do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then in the middle of winter, you try the normal varieties and they're a little bit softer and sweeter and so on. Yep. Well, so what else is good we should be uh, be looking for? Well, we've got these mini capsicums. Um, normal capsicums at the moment, because of the change of weather, they're running at about 4 to $5 a kilo. Mm. These mini capsicums, there are newer varieties that they've brought in. These are selling $8 a kilo. Uh, the little yellow ones, um, a bit bigger than a shotgun bullet, or maybe it's yeah. as long as an egg, but not as thick. 12-gauge. Yeah, and then we got the red ones that are a little bit bigger. Now, the beauty of these is that people buy them and stuff them, and it's um, a, a one serve. You might get two on a plate if you're lucky. Yeah. Make a special stuffing for them and fry them or bake them. Bonsai, capsicum. Yeah. Japanese style. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, they're small. They're, they're, they're lovely. Um, this place is called Tomato City. You folks know that. What's the tomato report? The tomato. At the end of the season. It's been so, a good one, hasn't it? Well, it's not the end of the season. We're, we're mid-season for Roma's mm. for sauce. Yep. And uh, our Doncaster tomatoes will go to June, July. So this is probably his third planting. And I, I've brought this ugly one. It's more flat and elongated rather than being round and pretty. Yeah. Um, actually, this looks like the old-style Adelaide tomato, but it's not. Really? This is probably what we'd call a throwback. Because yeah, right. it doesn't look pretty, bad shape. It's not uh, a bastardo, is it? Yeah, probably. But when you slice it in half, yeah. a beautiful, rich, vibrant colour, aroma, flavour to knock you over. Mm. The best thing to make a bruschetta or a, a salad. Yep. Or know. go down the down the thing. Who's the name of the baker that's in the tip top, the old tip top thing that you buy your, your stuff from? Uh, Chaffa. Chaffa. Mick Chaffa. Yeah. Mick Chaffa. So you'd go and get a lovely loaf or of Chaffa. Pa- I don't know. The same way. Mick anyway. But yeah. you go get a lovely loaf of pasta daughter for about four bucks. Yes. Slice that. Maybe put some. Yeah, put some butter on it. It's you said, I think, your first... Olive take... oil, mate. Olive yeah, oil, yeah, I know, mate. but yeah, just for the yeah. tomato singer. Yeah. I know, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, that's yeah. different. But if you, if you rub the olive oil and the, the, the garlic and then put the tomato on a tomato, oh. that stuff makes you live 100 years. Yeah, with a smile on your face. And a vino rosso. Yeah, and a vino rosso. Or maybe the vino rosé. Yeah. Or maybe even a beer. Hey, that's all right. Um, all right, let's do... Uh, oh, you, you want to show me the celery? I want to show you the celery. And then you've got about a minute. We've got all a right. minute to okay. do pick we, of the market. We can do that. Right. This is part of my pick of the market, actually, because look look inside, a nice and vibrant. Yep. Light green, not too dark green on the outside, very white on the inside, nice um, firm leaves, nice long stems. Um, you could nearly say it's stringless, not a real lot of string in the middle, mm. very sweet, nice to eat raw. So that's part of my pick, $2.30 for a big bunch. Yep. Okay, we'll do the pick of the market since you're telling me we've got a little yep. time. Yep. Uh, we started back with the fresh green peas. They're $12. Some people reckon expensive, buy a handful of beans. We've got yeah. local beans. You can pay anything from $4 to $8 a kilo for beans, depending on how long you want to keep them. You should be buying grapes this time of year. Yeah, look, we've got the old styles. We've got black muscatels with a seed, and we've got the natural sultanas, which are very small. Mm. If anything, they're over-browned for some people, but they're all sugar. And there are a whole lot of other varieties out there that are seedless and readily available. So hop in. They're very good for you. They give you a lot of fibre and antioxidants and sugar and that that the body needs. And and maybe um, think about doing the... uh the plums, the stone fruits, maybe think about some compotes as we, uh, oh, as we head off into to winter. It's time to look around for bargains with the, the stuff that's going out. This is the time, and this is the time to preserve, get ready for the, for the winter that's coming up. Definitely, and it there's is. so much stuff out there, and, yeah. and the new apples are exciting as well. Mm. I was saying I was not as excited but um, as I usually am because I've seen um, persimmons and that that you were saying about before, so life's good. Done. All right, well, I'm going to get out of here. John, thanks for your time as always. Watch out for those bastardos. Oh, they're lovely. You've got to try them. Oh, no, I we'll, we'll tell you how to cook them if you don't know how. All right, bye. Gosh, it's been a, 
It's been a little while between drinks, but but here I am, and I'm I'm sharing a drink with Ben Shuri in his restaurant at Attica. We say a very very good afternoon to you. Hello, Ben. Hello. We've just come from the gardens at Rip and Lee. That's where I found you. With uh, let's paint a picture for people. This is as well as uh, getting produce. It's great therapy for the staff. Well, that's what you tell them anyway, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, hospitality workers spend most of their day inside a dark, confined space. It's hot and it's not uh, really that conducive to good mental health even, I don't think, you know, the kitchen. So any opportunity to get outside of it in a day is important to, you know, to somebody who's working really hard, I think, you know. So, you know, they all really enjoy it. I, I love it. I can't wait to get over there you know so it's uh thursday today when you visited us it's our main garden day so we're doing you know we were adding compost um we were rotary hoeing in the compost into the beds planting seedlings and harvesting for how long has this kitchen garden been going for now uh five years yeah we've just recently expanded um we expanded again we started with one garden um in our relationship with the national trust and now that's developed into four separate gardens, individual gardens in the, in the uh, estate. Um, and uh, at Christmas we expanded again um, into the, probably the best part of the garden possible, uh, the former rose garden. Um, and that's really the only plot of soil, a plot of land inside the 15-acre yeah. property which has been uh, looked after um, over the journey of that. Continuously, yeah. Yeah, um, so that's always been composted, that's been fertilised, that's... Um, being looked after because there was roses in there. So, um, so well, what have you got in there now? What did you? Oh, there's corn in there. There's um, you know, there's toothache plant in there. There's a whole heap of different brassicas. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> did so, you say toothache plant? Yeah, it's like an old medicinal plant which you which you know people used to use to treat sore tooth. Um, they chew on it and it's got um, kind of natural. Is it like anaesthetic, like a like yeah. a clove is more so than a clove, though. I think, yeah, it's it's quite powerful. Actually, we already haven't we've grown we've grown it a couple of times before. We already haven't found a use for it because it can numb your mouth a little bit. So it's part a perverse part of me thinks that's kind of funny to do that to customers, but. Um, in reality, you know, it's probably not that cool. So we, we yet, or at least anyway, right at the end of the meal, probably. Yeah, I mean, we grow a lot of things that you know we don't know about and don't necessarily make any sense to us in the beginning. Mm. And through time, we we discover uses for them. Um, so we'll plant just about anything we find interesting. I just wanted to do a, a great example of that because we we were wandering through, and um, I brought a little bit of show and tell for you for this really thick gum leaf that I'd found. But you said. So that's all the begonias over there. And I said, can you eat begonias? And you went, yeah, tell us about that. Uh, I mean, there's only so many kind of edible plants that are available to us. Um, and, you know, when you feel like you've, you've, like, searched far and wide and you've found all the things you can find, then you start looking for things that people don't consider as edibles or aren't mm. sold as edibles. I was in a nursery one day and I saw the begonias and they reminded me, you know, of childhood of my grandmother as it would a lot of people because it's a very old-fashioned plant and it's not, you know, particularly in vogue. And I, it just looked so beautiful that I was sure that that would be edible, so I tested one and, and it was edible to me and, and uh, it was delicious as well, super delicious because the begonia leaf is succulent yes. as, a, as a flower. They have quite a high amount of oxalic acid, sort of lemony, like a sorrel like a sorrel is sort of sour and delicious and i you know i knew immediately from t- t- tasting it that it was edible it wasn't on poisonous mm. um and then researching um asking gardeners and uh and studying um you know books with uh lists of edible plants and i discovered that it was edible but people weren't eating them so we started growing them on mass we'd have probably 800 begonia plants in our garden Wow, all in raised things. So that's, uh, there's, there's one thing that you can try if you've got begonias in your backyard. Go out there and, um, and have a little taste of them. Obviously, if you've been spraying around, it might be a good idea to wash it under some water. But, yeah, really zingy, oxalic acidy sort of um, sorrel, as you say, yeah, is a good yeah. thing. So the kitchen garden has been going for five years, from strength to strength, getting bigger and bigger. And I think I remember the, when you first started the kitchen garden, we wandered around it was that area near the stables yep but you've just taken me back to the restaurant and 
you've got a new kitchen, haven't you? you must yeah. be wrapped in that. Yeah, we've got a, it's about sixty five percent new kitchen. I'd say, or maybe a bit higher. Seventy percent of the kitchen has been rebuilt, mm. um, and one area is completely brand new. It was never a kitchen before, and um, so that's um, that was where we used to have a cool room, and now we have um, kind of air conditioned. Um, cold cool room which is uh, for pastry and for cold preparation we close for three weeks every year the end of december and january through the christmas period and my father flew over a week before and dad and i spent uh, i think it was 30 18 hour days building ourselves really yeah with a rotating cast of tradie mates from uh, ocean grove um but we yeah we did it wow. we did it ourselves so this this wasn't your Christmas wasn't spent on the porch whittling sticks and no, dreaming of lasagna or no. Christmas lasagna. No, no, it was actually torturous. Um, it sounds. Yeah, it was. It was one of the harder things I've ever done. Um, you know, just every day from dusk till dawn to you know just just working our butts off to get it done. And it was you know a real tight time frame. And over that time, oh, it no. is quite hard to get trades um no you know, it's impossible to, to no mate work. i'm at the beach you're, you're dreaming yeah so i relied on really close friends from from back home to um you know to come and do it my plumbing mates and electrician mates and plaster mates and then everything we you know my father is a builder so uh, okay. yeah so we just yeah we went out and i'm handy as well i've renovated my house and uh yeah. and, and i'm you know, confident on the tools, really confident, and so Dad can still wield an S-wing hammer. And, yeah, he sure can. And, yeah. You know, and the weather was so good that he got stronger every day, kind of. And, oh, um, yeah, and um, and was it okay? So you were working to a deadline, and it's a nightmare. But was it kind of great to be hanging out with your dad and just was, working together? It was. It was really beautiful. So he was here for the first two weeks, and then I was by myself for the two weeks after. And the first two weeks was amazing with Dad, and you know, on demolition and 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 then refitting. And then the two weeks after, when you were by yourself, when you had I had a sort of you know a few friends coming in and out as well helping, but that was probably the hardest time. You know, after he'd gone, and you're like, well, now I'm 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 halfway through this renovation, and I'm in, I'm in it by myself, and I'm we're reopening alone. in two weeks. Yeah, I'm alone. I'm alone. Um, and it's like a massive task, and we've pulled apart, you know, three different rooms and. We have contractors building a cool room as well. And um, and there's know. this sound of this empty restaurant as you're working, and I imagine it would have oh, sort of sat on the dirt. shoulders pretty hard. Yeah, there's dirt everywhere, and my children are back, you know, in the coastal town that I live in. They're not with me, They're, you know, and my wife. They're, you know, they're on holiday and I'm here, and it was, um, no, I've got no I'm not complaining. I'm, I've got my only, I'm the only person that, you know, to blame for it. But um, yeah. it was pretty, yeah, it was... It was a testing time, yeah. I kind of fell in a pile after it. I worked for three or four days when we reopened to make sure that it worked properly, and then I took some time off. Mm. Yeah, but, I, yeah, I thought I was just going to be able to come back and keep working and working, but I was destroyed. You, you are not a machine, Ben, even though you like to think no, you are. No, like, yeah, they, I think we all like to think we are sometimes, but, uh, yeah, I, it was the best thing to do to take that break because I came back super revitalised, and, and I've, I think I've probably never been as happy as I am right now in cooking and running the restaurant and I don't think I'm, I've ever enjoyed cooking as much as I do uh, I am right now especially in these last couple of weeks I've really kind of you know come out of the, the painfulness of the renovation and and you and, have this new your better. new space you yeah it's so much more efficient the staff you know have a much easier more modern kitchen to work in we're able to clean it a lot easier. We're able to show our guests. We were a little bit embarrassed before about our, you know how antiquated our kitchen was, and and now it's just it's amazing, you know. And and I'm just loving cooking in the space, and I feel really motivated and positive about the future. You invited me to the tenth anniversary of the restaurant. Yep. I thank you for that. There was a lot of emotion on the yep. day, and um, it's it was incredible how fast. A decade can just fly by. What were the things that the the biggest things that you've learned from from that ten years? And you know, they, I know that's it's it's an awful but, question oh, to ask. Really, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think you know, I think never giving up is like a big is a pretty big one. And I think it's really obvious. It's, uh, you know, it's like a 
you know, it's what we say to our children all the time, never give up on your dreams and all that. But, you know, as adults, sometimes we forget that message that we, you know, that we told our children or that we were told as children ourselves. Keep getting out of bed. Yeah, keep getting <laughs> out of bed and keep banging your head against the wall, you know, and don't, like, let anybody tell you that you can't do something, you know. And I think, you know, the last 10 years I've been told that a bit and... Uh, I've also had incredible support as well, though. You know, I've also had, I've been blessed with people saying, you know, you should definitely, you know, it's, a, it's fantastic, you should definitely keep going. And, you know, so you, you've you've just got to let, you know, you've got to be strong of mind and sure of yourself. And um, even when you feel unsure of yourself, you've kind of got to have, you know, some loose sort of a plan. And that's kind of what I had, I suppose. You know, I, I just had a bit of ambition um, and I had a strong work ethic. And mm. that was the two things that uh, probably pushed the restaurant um, you know, I would say, you know, it, it's always like, um, it's always a good thing when a hospitality worker who's the person working in the business and running it can own it as well. Yes. You know, that's a pretty big deal. I'd say to young chefs and young sommeliers and waiters, you know, around the country that, that if you can, you know, if you can make plans to own your restaurant outright without partners, then that's, that's a really positive thing for you and you don't have to answer to anybody to be and master of your own destiny yeah yeah and then make decisions on everything you know how you know how you if you if you're fortunate enough to make a profit how you'll spend that profit and reinvesting it back into the restaurant and how you can use that to make conditions better for your staff how you can you know how you can just use it to become like a more positive business in your community um you know Without having to check with anybody, you know, and that's that's sort of that's a pretty big deal, you know. It's uh, not like asking your parents for permission. No, no, because you know, chefs and hospitality workers generally, you know, like are looking at things a little bit differently than say a businessman is who mm. who comes in and wants to buy a restaurant. Um, it's a different eyes and a different brain. Isn't it, it is, yeah, because we we just grew up in this industry generally, and and we just see it a different way, and and it's not always about meeting your food costs. You know, it's not always. Sometimes you just have to break the food cost because if you really want to do something quality, then the the money side of it. Well, mm. yes, it's it's it is crucial that you don't spend too much on food, otherwise you'll go broke. But at the same time, if something's beautiful, you have to use it. You have to be able to offer it to people. You know, and you just have to work out a way of putting it on there. And I guess mm. for me, I just see things that I want to use them, and I don't. No, the consequences is like a sort of a secondary thought, which sounds like pure insanity to any probably business advisor or even my bank manager if he's listening out there. But that's just, that's just what I want to do, you know. Um, I don't want to be held back. And I'm going to move forward the hell with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and just don't make excuses. I think that's another thing too. Thinking back on the last 10 years, I, I made very few excuses for myself about why we couldn't and it was more about why we could. Or why we should. Yeah, why we should, why we can and we will. Mm. And... Um, you know, and we had this saying, um, which which includes a profanity, so I won't say it, but it was basically, um, you know, we've got to get it done. Basically, that's what it, that we would say that, you know. when, when we, We've when, got to get stuff done. We've got to get stuff done. Insert yeah. other words. Yeah, and okay. another word. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I um, think we got it. And we would, we would say that, um, you know, when we were faced with a big challenge, we would, we would say that. You know, and then we would just move forward and get it done until it was done, like in a, in a sort of a real ferocious sort of a way, like uh, mm-hmm. like like every day everybody's going to work on that until that's done. And that was how we tackled, you know, the building of the first garden beds. We were so under-resourced. <laughs> yes. We had no staff to do it. You know, yeah. we had to do it. I decided that we would do it. Everybody agreed because it's not just me. It's not some, like, crazy dictatorship where it's just me making the decisions. You know, there's 32 staff who are making the decisions and... They all have valuable input. So once we all decide that that's the, that's the thing we're going to do, then let's damn well do it and not making excuses. Um, and it was the same with the renovation of the kitchen. You know, even though the staff weren't as involved in that, you know, I decided I'm going to do it. And everybody said, "You're mad. You'll not be able to do it." Um, including my, you know, my good buddy Chris Love, who's the kitchen designer. Hmm. And yes. you know, he's saying, "Ben, you're crazy. You know, like it's not going to happen." I'm like, "Chris, it has to happen. You know, it's just the way it is." Ten years, a decade, a hell of a long time. One of the things, you know, lessons learned and things like that, I want to just quickly talk about ingredients and what you've learned over this over this decade about finding new ingredients and using new stuff. Sure. I mean, that's probably been my quest even before I started Attica. So it goes it back, has, goes it? back to 
uh, when my wife Natalia was working for the Department of Infrastructure in the city and she worked 9 to 5 Monday to Friday <laughs> and I worked, you know, 8 to 11pm. <laughs> well, I had, I think I had, I had, had Monday, Tuesday, I think I had Monday, Tuesdays off. I did, I had Monday, Tuesdays off. And uh, I had 9 to 5 Monday to Tuesday with this time in my hands. I didn't know what to do. So mm. we just bought a car. I fairly knew the city. I just started driving. I drove everywhere around the city. I drove in the country. I went to the Yarra Valley. I went to Footscray. I went to S- Sunshine. I went to Springvale. You know, I went to Sydney Road. I went to Geelong. I went to the Mornington Peninsula. And the whole time, all I was doing was looking for ingredients. Um, and I don't really... I couldn't even tell you why because I didn't have any ambition to even be the head chef or cooking in a restaurant at that point. You know, we didn't have children. Mm. I was uh, 25, 26 years old, but I was just on this massive exploration. And that lasted probably for, you know, a good three or four years. So I really worked out where everything was to eat in the city. Um, back then, I mean, like it's kind of passed me by probably now a little bit. But um, but that was really, really, gave me a really good idea of what, you know, Australian culture was like in terms of food. Because, you know, you could see the roots of all these different Groups of you know all, all the yeah. threads that make up this multinational sort of uh, cloth that we have. Well, that's right. You know, ninety seven percent of the population in Australia has moved here. And but, but then you went a stage further, didn't you? And you started looking at all the foods that we hadn't really considered. That's right. I mean, I still think there's probably quite a lot of foods though that I discovered in those journeys and trips that we hadn't considered, and we still don't consider. You know. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, when I started, so that set me in good stead when I, a few years later when I did start at Attica and start cooking. And um, I guess it's always sort of been my quest is to find different things because I don't think the same as every other cook. Um, and that's not to say that I think better or worse than them. Just different. Just different, you know, and I'm just my own person. And I was curious and I grew up in a very kind of curious environment where, where that curiosity was always like, urged you know or pushed where i grew up was very immediate in backcountry new zealand so mm. you know you only had a certain amount of things to use when you're cooking because you didn't have a supermarket so you had and i think i've been i've been good at making use of the things that are around me like even in this neighborhood now i know exactly where i can buy all of the different ingredients in this neighborhood in Ripponlea. i know exactly where i can find all the different wild plants that exist in this in this in, in this neighborhood in Ripponlea. i know every single one almost and that's because I've studied it over 10 years. Mm. That's because I've got relationships with shopkeepers and producers in this area over 10 years. And so as a child, you know, I knew where the blackberries were. I knew where the strawberries were. I knew where, where the old man's beard was. I knew the good spots for shellfish. Mm. Um, my father knew the good spots, you know, to dive for um, crayfish. We had a vegetable garden. These were all just normal things, not a big deal, you know, just before the big kind of craze of foraging for wild ingredients became really mainstream in cooking and it was just awareness wasn't it really being yeah being aware of, of yeah it's just been a it's just you know it's folly to not to use what's what's around you there's numerous reasons for that one it gives you an identity unique to the place that you're from mm-hmm. um two they're there and they should be eaten um and three uh distance is not the friend of any good ingredient so, yes. you know, they're closer to the time of harvest, to the time of eating, the better. You it's know, it's, not, it's a law of diminishing returns. That's why we grow over 90 different varieties of plants in our gardens at Ripponlea because we want to pick them every day and eat them every day and then discard or compost what's left um, from the harvest. Mm. So, yeah, when I, we don't discard, we use it. But, yeah, that's, you know, that's, um, that's the reason for doing it. Yeah. And that sort of brings into the whole notion of, of foraging is to use foodstuffs that were from the race that was here before European settlement. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you've certainly embraced and brought into your palate. I wonder if maybe we talk about your sort of use of bush foods and the way that it seems that the majority, mainstream Australia, has pretty much turned their back on it or have never really turn to face it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to the fact that we've never really been able to reconcile the past with Indigenous Australians, you know, with Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal communities. Different and from New Zealand It's so different, it? yeah. And it was very no Waitangi Treaty, was there? No, no, it was over 100 years ago, you know, that they signed yeah. that. And, look, they haven't made good on all those promises in New Zealand either, so True. we shouldn't say that right. we're, we're perfect, but, yeah. but that did set a very different precedent 
to hear. And it's very, very apparent to me moving here as a young, you know, as a young 24-year-old to 25-year-old to Australia, the differences, not just in the fact that Maori have sovereignty mm. and Aboriginal people didn't, um, just the, the attitude generally in society when I first moved here was markedly different. And people were saying things, you know, to me that I found really offensive and really culturally insensitive mm. that people had never said to me... Never heard before. Never heard before in New Zealand. And, um, and, and so I think, you know, like that lack of appreciation for Australian native ingredients is tied up with the fact that we've, you know, really mistreated this, this group of people, um, you know, Indigenous Australians, so badly... Um, that you know, and we haven't really been able to say sorry or make good on anything at all, and therefore, perhaps subconsciously, we've turned our back on them because mm. on that set of ingredients, because there's embarrassment around the treatment of Indigenous Australians in in Australia. I don't know if that's somehow subconsciously linked in it. Sometimes it feels yeah. like it does because when I first started to f- discover those ingredients. Um, I just couldn't believe that nobody was, you know, like in mainstream. I mean, there's definitely people that are in re- interested in them before me, but um, but nobody was really embracing them in restaurants at the time. They had done in the past already before. They had a go at it. It, was, it was sort of weird. We um, it, Maybe even before you came to this country, there, were, we were, there was this breastfeeding about we need an Australian cuisine. Yeah, you know, were you there still, for that debate? That still, that still continues to this day. And then know? we thought maybe we'll eat the coat of arms. Sorry, I'm being flippant, but yeah. you know we we looked we towards that, and then arms. we sort of went, oh, no, we don't want to do that. No, and, I, and then there's this view that sort of said, oh, we can't really do bush foods because a they're really really hard to cultivate. You can't just broad acre farm yep. stuff, yep. and it's incredibly seasonal. So it seemed almost like an excuse to sort of people to throw their shoulders up and go, ah, too hard, but too bloody hard. Yeah, and it, yeah, no, I agree. Um, they are a challenge to work with as well. That's the other thing. You know, this is a very arid, harsh um, climate, and it produces indigenous plants which have similar flavors. Amazing, mm. but they need to be tempered. Um, so that mm. you know that that learning process that takes time. You know, you can't just say, oh, all of a sudden, I'm going to start. You know, a, a restaurant solely based on um, you know on ingredients from the bush because yeah. because you have to have time to learn to temper them and it just doesn't happen overnight. But that's not to discourage anybody from having a crack at all. No. Like that, everybody sh- should have a crack if they're interested in it. I don't try to force any one way of thinking on anybody either because. You know, indigenous ingredients are incredibly important to me, but then there are other groups in society too which haven't really been acknowledged for their contribution to Australian yeah. society, you know, either. And I think, you know... Such as? Well, I think... I don't think that, you know, I don't think that that that, that Chinese culture is celebrated in, in the way that it perhaps should or... The, Chinese. The first bringers of takeaway food to this country in yeah, the nineteenth exactly. century. I, mean, I don't know if we have, if we fully appreciate how good we've got it in yeah. relation to eating Chinese food in Australia. You know, yeah. I believe that you know, the, or how far back it goes. Well, that's right. I mean, six years after the first um, European immigrants, the first Chinese were here, is my understanding. And and you know, bringing all this incredibly rich culture and massively long tradition of cooking at a high level here, delicious food and unusual ingredients. And it's such an ingrained part of our culture. I think, you know, I think, you know, the, the influence of Asia on Australian cooks is completely profound and really different in Australia than almost any other country in the world. I also believe that you can eat some of the best Chinese cookery outside of China here in Australia. I, and, and, I, and it's a belief that's not held just by me, but other experts as well, you know. So, mm. you know, I don't know if they get the credit they deserve. Uh, Probably not, you know. Probably um, not. Yeah. yeah you're, you're probably right, even though they've been so important in in feeding so many of us skippies That's right. over, yeah, over, yeah. over the years. Hey, tell you what, just, just as a thought, you know, we talk about um, interpretation of um, indigenous food and bush foods and things like that. The one thing with it, when I heard that Rene Redzepi was coming to Sydney, and I'm wondering if you're going to go up there and have his food and if you have already but it would be interesting to see what he makes of uh indigenous palette of foods um i think Rene's really excited by what he's found and what he's what he's cooking with 
I think this, you know, he's known about it for some time because he's been out here so many times. It's been a real odyssey for him and a real discovery. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's one of the main, you know, motivating factors for him coming here, you know, mm. b- because, you know, he's like a, kind of like an adventurer in a way, like, uh, and, he, and he wants to go somewhere where he can cook with uniqueness, and that's what these, that's what these ingredients offer, you know, as a... Oh, you're sort of like kindred spirits there, aren't you, in, in a way? Yeah, do, do you yeah, see yeah, similarities with friends. yourselves? I think we think very differently, actually. And I th- we, we, okay, in what way? Well, I think, I, I think we, we cooked together on this dinner um, for an event called the Jelinas run by a friend, a mutual friend of both of ours called Andrea Petrini. And this one, this one event that we had was held in honour of the great um, chef from New York, Wiley Dufresne, of former, formerly had a restaurant called WD50. Yeah. And we all, a group of friends, about 20, 25 of us from all over the world, travelled to New York and um, secretly, without telling anybody, and we set up camp in his restaurant when it was closed, and he was away hunting, and we and we cooked we cooked a dinner. Um, did someone and, and steal the keys from him or something? Yeah, his father, really? Father, yeah, his father gave us the keys, and um, really, yeah. So he came. He got a he phone. He got a phone call, and um, the phone call was, "Hey, you know, you've, you've got to come down to the restaurant. It was on its day off. You've got to come to the restaurant because you know, the, cor- the the walk-in quorum is broken down. And what are we going to do? Or the food's defrosting, or whatever. Or some, yeah, some, it's some spoiling. Excuse, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he came into the dining room with his dad, and we were all like, there was a heap of us. It was probably about all the guests as well, because we're cooking for guests. So the guests were all like his friends and people that inspired us, and um, and they were all, it was completely dark and we were all hiding in the restaurant. And he comes in and he's like, what the hell? Kind of like, he doesn't like, he would have said something a little bit stronger than that. Oh yeah, well, he yeah, didn't, he doesn't, doesn't love surprises. And he, uh, <laughs> and um, anyway, he was, you know, it was really amazing because he's a really influential guy and he, you know, he helped out a lot of us. And anyway, we all had to collaborate on dishes and Rene and I teamed up to cook a dish. And I think we both were really kind of surprised about how different we different were. We were. Um, I mean, but in a similar way, we're probably quite both quite driven, and so it was sort of it was really amazing couple of days. We've never had the opportunity to work like that together before, and we cooked, um, we cooked, pretty much. I think we were there for three days, and we worked on this dish because we, we basically we had to recreate one of Wiley's dish dishes, but we had to kind of come to an agreement about how that would be represented by the both of us, yeah, and right. we worked for two days nonstop, like two twelve thirteen hour days, trying to make a dish which was working and it was like so like crazy and frustrating and and what, what, oh, was, what just, was the dish oh, look, it was, it, something look, i can't remember all the details but it was basically like um a kind of a, a porridge of like like grains like a savory sort of porridge or like a, a braise of like of um of grits um yeah. and corn um Rene had bought an ingredient from from Denmark, I had bought one ingredient from Australia. I'd bought I'd bought rotten corn, which is like a um, corn smut. Is that what they? Rotten corn is like a. It, it's my interpretation of rotten corn, which is a, which is a, um, a dessert, a, a New Zealand Maori dessert oh, based okay. based on corn that's aged in a river. Oh, so different um, from the um, Mexican stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got rotten corn. He's got like he's got, he's got like <laughs> some sort of um, like sort of fermented chicken juice or um, <laughs> like a chicken soy type situation. And we came together and made this dish, but we worked on it for very intensely for three days. And it was a really great experience, I think, for both of us. Um, and I, I do feel like we kind of failed, um, mm. you know, like, but we but we failed gloriously. We failed together and it was like, you know, but it was a very, like, mutual respect thing, but we both had very clear different ways of cooking and I probably wouldn't have realised how different we were as cooks yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of similarities as friends but as cooks, as professionals we're really different so as the Vietnamese say, uh, same same but different Yeah, same same but different but um, yeah, the, you, you're sort of both the same in the way that Rene could have followed the sort of a real safe type of thing and done the soul with the beurre blanc and things like that but he decided no, I'm going to find out what the hell is growing near me and you know the you're both sort of similar in that respect in the in that whole foraging thing you're going to go to Sydney yeah and I have I've eaten there and it was fantastic um, I mean I think the guy is like uh, um, absolutely amazing you know like as a as an individual and what he's done for 
the, his nation and for that whole region is yeah. like probably maybe it's never going to be you know repeated in history in terms of the culinary value that he's brought to his 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 homelands mm. and the ideas that he's brought inspiring almost like a whole generation of cooks not just in Denmark but all over the world um, one of the most influential people in cooking in all time probably and um, I ate there and I was yeah I was really moved um, by it it was um, you know it really felt like Noma to me as well like because I've eaten in Noma a couple of times in Denmark and um, they really were probably the best experiences I've ever had in a fine dining restaurant especially wow. the first time I ate there okay, that's and, um, and and that's me being completely honest and and it really felt like Noma was you know it'd come to Australia that it felt a lot like Denmark to me which is you know which is which is really cool because um, they were being true to themselves who are your other culinary heroes you say that oh, Rene is one of them who are the other people you look up to I mean it's funny because you should say that because right now I'm working on this new dish which I can't tell you about because it's a surprise but it's, it's the tiniest dish ever it's like a oh, okay. tiny little sweet it's not even almost not even a dish it's something you finish on but it pays homage to like the, the sort of top 25 most influential people to me you know the people who and they're not even people that necessarily influenced like my way of cooking but more people who I look at as you know the way that they the way they go about it the way they treat their team the way they run their restaurant their passion their energy you know I look at it like wow I really like admire that so you know there's a a whole you know amazing group of cooks Um, they're all cooks because it's quite specific to this tiny little thing that we're making and at the moment, along with Danny, my friend Danny Valant, we're writing all the stories about them, and it's sort of in the first-person account, and uh, it's kind of like a whodunit um, type situation. And um, it's a really, really fun project. And um, so you've got, you know, people from David Thompson through to uh, my really true mentor, Mark Limaker, mm. to Rene, to um, Anthony Lau, uh, sorry, Anthony Louis, and through to who else is in there Dan Hong yeah. to Christina Tosi to Maggie Beer yes um, just people who I think are flipping legends and um, so we're going to see this in um, in some sort of so we will see this in a dish in yeah, front yeah, of us a very small dish. one but yeah. you're also collaborating with Danny yeah who's who's writing these these pieces I'm I'm sort of researching the people and asking them questions you know yeah. about themselves about some facts that maybe you know you've never heard of or I've never heard of and yeah. so is this going to be in a, a book form no, or this is no, going to be in notes that, that are going to be in, when you come in the restaurant so this is going to be like little and, and notes that see, come you'll be like ah oh, Ben is so obvious okay. yeah yeah it's it's a recreation of something that already exists and there it is, and that's probably a good place to, to finish up with. Um, ben Shuri, you have been so generous with your time. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. Congratulations on 10 years of uh, not looking in the rear vision mirror, and um, we look forward to seeing where this road takes you. Thanks so much, Cam. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.